So I invite you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I want to read the first 10 verses. And before we read, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your words. We pray that we would have that sense that you as our Heavenly Father have come down to speak to us as we study this together. So, Father, be in our midst, be in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So we've been working through uh, the book of Romans uh, for some time now. And uh, recently we've been looking at this section from 9 through to 11 uh, where we've seen that Paul has taken a a somewhat unexpected turn. He's been in the heights of assurance and encouragement at the end of chapter 8 and uh, when you come to chapter 9 suddenly it takes another turn uh, and he expresses great anxiety and sorrow. Why? Because of his fellow kinsmen, his fellow Jews. Uh, Because they don't seem to be responding to the gospel. Um, And you think they might do because of all the background that they have, all the heritage they have, all the word of God that they have. It's all written down for them and yet they just seem to not um, accept it. And uh, he has this ongoing concern for his people, Israel. And the great concern of Paul throughout the letter has been to show that a person can only achieve righteousness uh, or uh, obtain righteousness uh, by grace. Um, you can't, the, the great need of human beings is the fact that in their left to themselves, they are unrighteous and ungodly and in that state they are unacceptable to God God is holy but men and women and boys and girls they are unrighteous and so what, what are human beings to do well God provides our righteousness God is righteous 
And he acts righteously. And as we've seen, he is able to make over a righteousness to us that belongs to Jesus Christ. So he, he unites us to Jesus Christ. And as we are united to him, everything that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. That's an amazing thing. So, and what's the sign of that union with Jesus Christ? Faith. True faith in Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the sign that you have been united to Jesus. True faith in Jesus Christ. And the problem for the, the Jews uh, that Paul knows about is that they're seeking a righteousness of their own. Uh, so you look back to chapter 10, verse 3. Um, he speaks of the Jews saying, For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's own righteousness. So, so there's this question about the place of the Jews, the Israelites. Um, now, one of the things that uh, kind of emerges from this, and I, and I think it's something that's pretty important, and is that it's, it's possible for us to believe mistakenly, but it's impossible for us to believe that the Judaism that Jesus faced and in which he moved around and intera- with which he interacted, that, that Judaism or the Judaism that the Apostle Paul was trained in, because he was probably a similar age to Jesus, he was trained in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, it's possible to think that that Judaism is what the Old Testament teaches. And I certainly thought that as a young Christian. I remember I became a Christian in my late teens, and uh, I thought the, the Jews that are portrayed in the New Testament, well, they, they've got Judaism, and then there's Christianity. It's two different things. And as though, you know, Old Testament... And so I basically picked up this idea that Old Testament religion was bad and New Testament religion is good. Uh, but actually, that's false, because the way of salvation, as we've been looking at in the morning, the way of salvation has always been by grace. And the way that we have come to see this um, is, is in the way that Paul, in this letter, is in the way that Paul has answered the Jewish mindset in these chapters. And he does so by quoting extensively from the Old Testament to show that the way of salvation is, was always by grace and through faith. So in chapter 4, for example, uh, Paul talks about the place of faith by looking back to Abraham. It was always about faith. Faith is credited to you as righteousness. And, and Paul, is, as he's worked through these chapters, he has quoted from Hosea, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and also there's been an allusion to Leviticus, all of these Old Testament uh, writings, in order to show that the, the way that God planned and purposed salvation to come into the world uh, is, is actually happening exactly as he planned it. And it's always been the same way, by faith, in God and his promises that point forward to the Christ who is to come. And, and it's not according to the Judaism that was found at the time of Jesus or Paul. 
then actually that's an aberration uh, from biblical Christianity. What was the problem for these Jews? Well, the problem is that for all the reading and studying and debating of the contents of the Old Testament scripture, there was one thing they could not see. And Jesus points this out in John chapter 5. That the central issue is always Jesus Christ. These are the scriptures that speak about me, says Jesus. But you will not come to me for eternal life. In fact, this Messiah figure that is spoken of in the Old Testament actually becomes a stumbling block to the Jews. And that's that's prophesied as well. That he is the rock over which many stumble. And therefore they, they reject the essential message of the gospel that's even found in the Old Testament. Well, this passage that we come to this evening, it's, it begins with, a different, with another question, which of course if you've been following Paul up to this point and you're aware of the widespread rejection uh, of the gospel by the Jews, or Paul by the Jews, you might think is a reasonable question. Has God uh, rejected his people? Verse 1. Has God rejected his people? And his answer and uh, his answer is in a manner that we have seen before. Rapid and unexpected, and he says, by no means. By no means. And what he's going to do now is explain why it's by no means. He's rejected his people. And this is what he's going to do now in this passage. So verses 1 to 4, there are two simple proofs. Verses 5 and 6 tell us about the nature of God's grace. And in verses 7 through to 10... It warns us about the trap of self-righteousness. So two simple proofs then, verses 1 to 4. And he's, Paul's trying to show us that God has not rejected his people. And the first proof, there's two here, but the, the first proof that God has not rejected his people is a personal reason. His answer is, I myself am an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite. There is something almost mathematical about what he's saying here. And the mathematics goes something like this. If God has rejected Israel, then it means all Israelites have been rejected. Therefore, if we can find one Israelite whom God has not rejected, then that proves that God has not rejected Israel. You see? See the mathematical logic? And who is the one Israelite that God has not rejected? That he knows of, certainly. Well, Paul's answer is, me. (laughs) He's not rejected me. So how can we say that God has rejected Israel? He has experienced wonderful salvation. So that's the first argument he makes. The second argument he makes is is drawn from history. uh, The history of the Old Testament. And he draws on the story of Elijah. Uh, so Elijah's there mentioned in verse 2. Um, and uh, the story is found in 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, and you remember that story. The prophet of, he is a prophet of God and he's ministering. 
uh, in the northern kingdom under, under the rule of Ahab. Remember the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at this stage have been split in two. And so there's two centers of power. There's Jerusalem in the south and there's Samaria in the north. And, uh, and Elijah has to, to flee for his life uh, at, because of the, the threat from Ahab's wife Jezebel. And he found himself alone and tired and fed up. And, uh, and so in verse 3 of Romans 11, we get this quote. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. So he's pretty dejected. He's pretty fed up. But what's God's answer? Well, it's in verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 men that Elijah could not see, didn't know about. And yet God comes and assures him, there there is a people that I have for myself. 7,000 of them. And the emphasis is that God has kept them for himself. God knows what he's doing. God has been at work in the midst of this apparent dejection and failure. And God has been doing it. And notice that the work began through God's foreknowledge. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God knew who they were. Elijah thought he was in the midst of a disaster, but God is doing exactly what he planned to do. And that's a great encouragement for all of us, isn't it? Sometimes we go through difficulties and trials. Uh, There might be personal ones. There might be difficulties in church. Uh, Thankfully, in this church, we don't have many, many, very, very few. I can't actually think of any we've ever had in this church. Thank God for that. But sometimes people go through really difficult times and it looks so difficult. And almost like there's no other way out of it and I'm just on my own and I, can't, I don't know what to do about it. God knows what he's doing. God knows the beginning from the end. He is working out his purposes exactly as he has planned. So, so God has not rejected Israel. And Paul emphasizes in verse 5, That the same is true in the present time. Not just in the the first century, but in this post-Christ period. God is still doing the same thing. God is still in the business of bringing to salvation those whom he has foreknown. And keeping them from bowing the knee to Baal. Keeping them from bowing the knee to the idols of society. And many will come to him from Israel, from ethnic Israel. Many will come from among the Gentiles. Because this is what defines the true Israel of God. The gathered people of God. Those who are saved by grace, whom God foreknew and saved from all kinds of idolatry. This is what God does. God's in the business of gathering this remnant for himself even today. 
And it's a very important fact we need to keep hold of today. We can easily become like Elijah. We can easily become gloomy and despondent and fed up and feeling alone and in a world that seems against us and a world that seems against the church and maybe against the gospel or, or whatever. But God knows what he's doing. So be encouraged. You mustn't lose heart. God will have his way. His plans will succeed. His words preached in the gospel will not return to him void. Wonderful. So what does this mean then, secondly, about, about grace? Verses 5 and 6. Well, Paul moves on to verses 5 and 6 to speak about the grace of God in the midst of all of this. Because we've seen already that there are essentially two conceivable, not real, but conceivable routes to salvation. One is by our own human effort. We might conceive of an idea that somehow if I'm, if I'm good enough, I can, I can get to heaven somehow. To build ourselves a right, for ourselves a righteousness that will have weight with God. And that God will somehow be impressed with our self-worked righteousness. That's generally, it seems, how Paul saw the Jews doing it at his, in his time. The other way, which is the right way, is simply to cast yourself upon the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And to trust in Jesus Christ as your saviour and in his righteousness. So one side, are you going to work for your own, self, uh, your own righteousness? Or are you going to cast yourself on Jesus for salvation and rest on his righteousness? Now the two things are actually mutually exclusive. You can't have one, a bit of one and a bit of the other. Because as soon as you start trying to add anything to grace in salvation, you no longer have the grace that the Bible speaks of. And and the problem with the Jews uh, of of the first century was not that they didn't believe in grace. They did believe in grace. They would talk a lot about grace. But they believed in grace plus some extra works. So they they believed in enough grace and a bit of contribution from themselves. And it's, and it's really important that, to get this clear in our heads because there's not a religion in the world that doesn't believe in grace to some degree. That it, whoever the God is up in heaven, or gods or whatever, there's always a measure of grace that they believe in. Even the Pharisees of Jesus' time believed in grace. Uh, you remember that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee goes up to the temple to pray and he begins, Oh God, I thank you that. He's thanking God for all the things that he has. He he understands that God gives. It's a recognition that he is the giver and, and God should be thanked for all the things that he has. But then he goes on to say, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And immediately there's a focus on his good works. How good he is. Under the guise of thanking God for his grace, he starts pointing out his goodness to God. The Pharisee kind of smuggles in his work. Under grace, under an umbrella of grace, he smuggles in his good works that 
will carry weight with God. And suddenly the Pharisee is putting attention on himself and commending himself to God. It's always a clear telltale sign, I think, that someone has not understood the grace of God when it doesn't take very long at all before they begin to talk about themselves and their good works and how they help people. I've lost count of the number of people I've, who've come through the doors of this church over the years. And um, uh, they, want, they meet me, they discover I'm the minister. And as a weird thing happens when people discover I'm a minister because they start trying to impress me. <laughs> and telling me just, you know, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm sure you're not. I, I'm not a bad person. I've done a lot of good in my life. You know, and they want to be received. And they want to be welcomed and received. And I understand the impulse. They want to be accepted. But the basis of their acceptance is all wrong. They've not discovered that we rest in Jesus Christ yet. So I have to... You know, you have to gently try and lead people to Jesus Christ without offending them, saying, none of that matters, sorry, pal. (laughs) That's a total waste of time. You know, you could be really rude about it. But you have to be gentle and help people to see that you can't be saved that way. Why not? You know, people have this attitude, why not speak about all the good things I do? Doesn't that glorify God in some way? Well, if you really understand the freeness of the gospel, or its majesty and the scale of the purity that it confers, then, my friends, you'll have no thought at all of yourself and your merits at all. Not even the favor you think you're doing God by pointing to your works as a way of glorifying. Not even that will help. Friends, it's such a subtle thing. Everyone thinks they know about grace. They like to talk about grace. But for a great many people, it is a grace mixed with their own works. And they still harbor this idea that there is something that I'm contributing to my salvation. But that is simply to wreck grace. To wreck God's grace. So that it's not grace any longer. Grace is no longer grace. So friends, when you think about your place before God, only think about what God has done for you. Forget what you've done for God. Think about Him. Which leads us to the the last point this evening in verses 7 to 10, the trap of self-righteousness. Now Paul uh, moves on to talk about what, what I want to summarize as, as the trap of self-righteousness. Um, because we've seen that the Israelites who were reading the Old Testament scriptures and studying them failed to grasp that central point that uh, all that they had to say about uh, all that the scriptures had to say about the salvation that's coming through the Messiah, the promised Messiah. They missed it. And instead they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And here's the interesting thing about that. It leads, that kind of thinking, of establishing your own righteousness before God, it leads to a hardening of the heart. Look at verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking 
The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And as proof of that, he then quotes from uh, Isaiah 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor. So several, this is a word that's from you know, 700 odd years before Christ. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then he quotes David in Psalm 29, Psalm 69 rather. And he says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. You see, the Old Testament scriptures speak not only of the Messiah and his wonderful re- reception by the, the elect remnant. No, it speaks of the rejection of the message also. The message of the gospel by others so that they have a, a spirit of stupor. Uh, what is it? What is stupor? <laughs> As one definition puts it, uh, a state of near unconsciousness or insensibility. I, I have to admit, when I think of somebody in a stupor, it's usually associated with a drunken stupor. You know what people are like when they're drunk? Uh, they, they, they stagger around and they can't make a head or tail. They can't say anything sensible. I remember, I remember once, uh, uh, I've, you know, I've met many drunk people in my life and tried as, as a hopeless task trying to evangelize them because they have no idea what you're talking about and they, they don't speak any sense to, back to you. But I remember a man, uh, I, was, I was over in Peterborough a while back. Uh, I had to go to the passport office and um, I had to wait for my passport to be, uh, to be prepared. I was, I was going to pick it up later. So I bought a sandwich and I sat in the, it was a nice day, sat in the, the town center and uh, this uh, drunk guy came up to me and he asked for money. He says, can I, you know, I want to buy a sandwich. And I just bought this sandwich, which I hadn't actually started eating. I said, well, you can have this one. And he hadn't a clue what I was doing. He's totally confused. Because he just wanted money. It just got into his head. He wanted money. And I had to persuade him. Yeah, here it is. It's a sandwich. You can have it. Just have it. It doesn't make any sense to him. Because he was drunk. Drunk and stupor. This is kind of like what happens when your heart is hardened against the gospel and you begin to act like you're in a stupor. You can't make head or tail of it when your heart is hardened. And the more that you hear about the wonderful saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, the less it seems to make sense to you. And in that deep spiritual sense, you're, you're, you're sleepy, you're asleep, you're, you're in this stupor, and you cannot make sense of what you're hearing. So many people in churches today, they cannot make sense of what they're hearing because their hearts are hardened to the gospel. It's like you've got eyes that can't see or ears that can't hear. It's like some guy at the front going, wah, 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 when you have no idea what they're saying. Can't make sense of it. So there were people like this in Israel at the, in Isaiah's time and in David's time. And there are people like that in churches today. And we know that because, you know, you just have to meet people. You discover 
that they go to church. And when you, and when you talk to them about the wonderful grace of God, as I have, and I've tried to, they get defensive and they try to persuade you that they are good people and they live a good life. Instead of receiving the gospel, they start trying to persuade you that they're a good person and that they, have, uh, they deserve eternal life. And that's a telltale sign. They have no idea what grace is. The second quote in verse 9 and 10 uh, from Psalm 69 is quite chilling. Uh, because it, it speaks about a table. And, and a table is used to describe blessing from God. You know, he, Psalm 23. You lay a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. In the midst of all the trouble I face. You, you lay this wonderful bounty before me. And I am blessed. And yet, it's, it's used here. And the people who don't know grace, they are enjoy, enjoying the provision of God. And you can see perhaps how Paul is applying it here, that this is a person like the Pharisee with all the good things in this life, who begins with, I thank you God, and yet is building his eternal destiny on his own righteousness. And, and the table becomes a trap to them, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. As it says in verse 9, their hearts become hardened to the grace of God. And in fact, all that remains for these people, apparently good people, is the judgment of God. Because they are rejecting the way of salvation. Friends, as as we finish this evening, what are you trusting in this evening? Is there a lingering thought in your mind that there is still something about you that God will accept as a valuable contribution to your salvation. Or get rid of that thought. Ditch it. The way that God is gathering and accepting people is by opening their eyes and ears to the message about his son, Jesus Christ. And there is that sense that that you know that you have really seen it when you become aware that you're no longer in a sleepy stupor, that you are really living and seeing Jesus Christ clearly. Is that you today? As we finish, come towards the end of the Lord's Day today. Is that you today? Are you seeing Jesus Christ clearly? And ditching all thoughts of self-righteousness. It really is wonderful grace to discover it when God wakes you up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel. And Father, we pray you'd free us from these ideas that we have that somehow ourselves we are qualified and acceptable to you because of what we are or what we've done or or some quality that we have. Simply to, rather instead, simply to rest in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Help us to see him. In his name we pray. Amen.